Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it is five past two. We are ready to continue. I hope everybody had a good lunch. I certainly did. We are ready for our next speaker. But before I go into our next speaker, I just wanted to say, is this what an ordinary day is like in your lives? There's no rubber bullets, tear gas, no protests, no politicians you're chasing. Okay, I need to change jobs. We need, to, we need to talk about that. I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Johnny, who is 20 years experience from, as well, one of our sponsors, Prudential. And we have been giving fun facts about everyone. And I've asked him, what's something interesting about him that we don't know? He asked for an example. I said, like, for instance, myself, I am a deep sea diver and I love being underwater. So how about you, Johnny? Let's try that again. Everybody? Cool. All right, perfect. Who here plays poker? Okay, good. I see a couple of hands. And as I assume that you're quite rational with your money, I presume that at the end of the discussion, when I ask who, wants, who would choose active over passive, uh, you're going to choose active. Okay, what has poker got to do uh, with the active versus passive debate? Well, well let's have a sort of a simple example. Uh, I run a Friday poker night game. Uh, Five players, average buying $200. So the total pot uh, available is $1,000. Okay? The money coming into the room at the start of the night is exactly the same as the money uh, going out of the room. Every winner requires a loser. Okay? Uh, and let's just see how sort of certain scenarios play out. Ultimately, the pot is shared between the participants based on skill or luck. Okay, so let's have a look at a couple of scenarios. If I can get my clicker to work. Ah, oh, there we go. So we have five players. Uh, scenario one, boring game. Everybody goes home with what they arrived with. Scenario two, player four and five uh, win marginally at the expense of player two and three. Uh, and then scenario three, player four and five uh, clean up uh, and effectively funded by player two and three. Okay, in all of those scenarios, the total pot uh, is $1,000, uh, uh, and then the average winning for the Knights, so it's clickers a bit out of there, the average um, winnings for the night in each scenario is $200. Okay? Uh, this effectively, in the investment space, is the observation that active managers, when combined, hold the market, and therefore, on average, before fees, the average manager will produce the market return. Okay. Let's assume that one particular night, one of my friends doesn't show up, so my wife agrees to, to play, but rather than being an active participant, she says she's happy to put down her $200, but she's passively going to watch, and all she wants at the end of the night is the average winnings of, uh, of the pot. Okay, what happens at the end of the night uh, is again the average active participant gets their $200, uh, and then my wife, who wanted just to have the average winnings as, as a passive player, she also gets her $200. This, effectively, in summary, is um, the argument for passive management, as set forth now by, in our famous paper by William Sharp, called The Arithmetic of Active Management. Okay? It says that active managers 
um, as a whole own the market, as do the passive managers, uh, and effectively all of them together will generate the market return. Obviously, to the extent that active management fees are higher than passive management fees, passive will outperform active, plain and simple. Okay. The, if the reasoning is sound, though, then I have to question those individuals who put their hands up earlier. Okay? If you, why do those individuals play poker if this is actually the outcome? Or why do active managers like Prudential spend their lives trying to outperform? Okay, the answer must be that we think we have some kind of skill. Okay, but investments, I guess it's all about relative skill. So as an active manager, you constantly have to ask yourself who is on the other side of the trade. So what we are looking for as active managers are easier games or weaker players that we can effectively exploit with what, with what we perceive to be our higher level of skill. Okay, because as they say in poker, if you've been in the game for 30 minutes and you don't know who the patsy is, you know, you are probably uh, the patsy. Now, where William Sharp's um, arithmetic is overly simplistic is that he effectively divides the market into active and passive, where we would argue at least a categorization uh, should be between passive investors, economic investors, and non-economic investors. Okay, so what is a non-economic investor? This is somebody who buys shares in the market and their primary concern is not the highest return. So we have that often in government agencies, you know, be it the IDC that own stakes in companies, they're more concerned about um, you know, influencing corporate policy or saving jobs. We also have that in the corporate space where one company might own another company for strategic reasons as opposed to just the highest return. So this is uh, MassMart, uh, for those of you close to the markets, uh, you may recall that Walmart, the big um, retailer, came in and effectively bought this company at some point in 2010. Okay, effectively, an active manager could have bought MassMart when earnings were still growing and when the multiple was depressed, it was trading below 16 times, and then effectively sold out here where earnings were effectively flat for almost a decade and the multiple was above 16 times earnings. Okay, Walmart being concerned with corporate strategy, I guess don't mind the fact that they've seen their 128 rand become 64 rand in nominal terms over a decade in rand. So their dollar loss uh, is obviously significantly more. So if we return now to my poker example and consider not just active and passive, but effectively classify certain of the players in the market as non-economic uh, and look at, uh, look at what happens to the numbers. So again, total pot is still 1,000 the average player is going to walk away with, with 200. Uh, the average passive player walks away with 200. But what we have now is a scenario, which we believe exists in the market, where economic investors can outperform passive investors, uh, even though those passive investors might in fact outperform the non-economic uh, investors. Okay, we've seen a massive shift into passive. So this is just uh, US data. Uh, the red is inflow into passive ETFs or, um, or unit trust, and this is the sort of outflow out of uh, active. Driven by, in my view, three determinants, an intense focus on fees, the uh, difficulty U.S. managers have had in outperforming the U.S. benchmarks, and tax. Now, I haven't got enough time to go into the, the tax rationale, but I encourage you to do your reading. There is a huge tax advantage that exists in the U.S., uh, U.S. ETFs over U.S. mutual funds. Um, 
that advantage doesn't exist in the U.S., uh, in Europe or South Africa, and has largely has been largely driven has largely driven this move uh, into ETFs. So the fact that passive is smaller, uh, the sorry, active fees passive fees are much smaller than active fees, uh, get swamped by the tax advantages that ETFs have in the U.S. over mutual funds, and you often don't see that sort of talked about uh, in the press. Now this huge push into passive, you'll see a lot of active managers saying, well. The more people that go passive, the easier it will be for active managers to outperform in the future. Okay, we don't actually think that that, that is true. In fact, we, 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 think, it's, we, we think it's the reverse. Um, there's a very famous strategist called Mabusen, who used to work for Credit Suisse. He actually argues that the move into passive is actually going to make the game even more difficult for active managers in the, in the near term. Uh, and again, I thought our poker, poker example would be an interesting way of looking at it. The people who are likely to move out of the market and go passive are likely to be the less informed investor, or in our poker game, the weaker player. So in essence, our game then gets reduced to eight players. We have less losers in the game, and therefore active managers effectively have a smaller pot. So although the average economic investor here is still beating the passive, the quantum of the win relative to passive is smaller than uh, was on the, uh, on the previous slide. So we do expect the game to get more difficult as more people go passive. Okay, some facts out of the US. Uh, in our view, outperformance of an index or equity alpha is cyclical. Uh, some very good stats put forward by Goldman Sachs shows periods of outperformance of active over passive followed by periods of uh, underperformance. So we believe alpha is effectively cyclical. Uh, it's not true or it's incorrect to say that active will never outperform. Uh, in fact, despite the very long period of underperformance that active has recently experienced, uh, we still had about 35% of uh, U.S. equity managers uh, beating their benchmark after fees. Uh, and if you include the cost of passive, which is often ignored in the analysis, 43% of active managers effectively beat uh, their passive counterparts in the equity space. The bond space is quite interesting because there's a lot more non-economic investors in the bond space. Uh, particularly central banks uh, post the global financial crisis have been huge buyers of government bonds simply to boost, be it inflation or growth, with absolutely no reference to price, which is why we have a sort of $11 trillion of developed market bonds sitting at negative yield. In fact, PIMCA estimates that half of the $100 trillion bond market is actually held by non-economic investors. No surprise, therefore, that actually U.S. active bond funds are easily outperforming uh, their passive peers. Okay, what about data in South Africa? So uh, you know, I'm in a room of, of, of sort of South African actuaries, so I actually urge you to write something that is worth reading. This is what we currently have. The survey comes out twice a year. I think it comes out just to annoy me. Okay. Uh, effectively, what this, um, this survey does, it takes the general equity category, I think there's about 150 funds, uh, and they work out how many of those funds are beating the benchmark. Okay, there's two problems with the analysis. One, uh, it's not based on assets under management, it's based on a simple fund count. So if you had one fund that was 30% of the general equity category and it was outperforming, it gets the same weight as a fund that has 5 million uh, in the fund. Uh, the bigger flaw is that they're not measuring every fund relative to that fund's benchmark, but to the surveyor's own index, which none of the 150 funds are actually tasked with beating. Uh, 
Okay, so that's, that's illogical as saying that in 2016, because the RAND strengthened and two-thirds of South African managers beat the S&P, South Africa must have the best U.S. equity managers in the world. Okay, simply not true. You have to track every fund relative to its own benchmark. So we've done the analysis. These are the five largest funds in the equity category, together with Prudential three equity unit trusts. This represents 60% of the funds under management in this category. Our analysis is effectively over five years um, that effectively um, seven of the eight funds or 88% of these managers have actually outperformed their, their benchmark. As I said, this is 60% of the universe, so sort of six nines of 54, even if every other fund underperformed its benchmark by AUM, the, the managers are effectively beating uh, their benchmarks. All right, who knows what this is? Okay, this is actually the answer to my following question. How many more times is the SA market more concentrated than the US market? Okay, the answer obviously is 10 times based on the Herfindahl-Hirschman index. Okay, so the 640 is 10 times more concentrated than the S&P. Okay, in fact, we couldn't find another country index that was more concentrated than the South African market. Uh, and in our view, and I'll show you one or two examples later, concentration is the enemy of a passive investor. Let's just talk, talk about turnover for a second. Um, the original theory behind passive was that you held the market portfolio. All risky assets in, in proportion to the market capitalization, and therefore there was very little trade because you held the market at every point in time, and that led to lower transaction costs, which is another benefit of passive. Okay, but indices don't track the whole market. They track a select part of the market. So in the US, you track the top 500. In SA, you, tap, you, you track the top 40. These indices need to be rebalanced, let's say, quarterly, and that gives rise to turnover. Okay? What proportion of the index do you need to sell or buy on a quarterly basis as a proportion of the market value of that index? Okay, the S&P is rebalanced quarterly. Uh, the turnover there runs at about 5 to 6%. Bond funds, are, for, the, for those of your interest, their turnover is around 35 to 40%. Okay, these indices are rebalanced monthly, so more frequently, so more trade. Also, bonds mature, so that basically means bonds expire, new bonds have to go in. So there's massive turnover in these indices, and that provides massive opportunity for active managers to decide whether they buy or not the new bond coming into the index. Again, a primary reason why bond funds or active bond funds perform better um, relative to passive peers than equity funds. Okay, look at where the sort of switch 40 is. I contend, and maybe one of you wanted to write some kind of paper about this, but I would argue that passive makes sense down here. As we move up the concentration scale and across, I believe the benefits of passive uh, actually reduce. Okay, onto my concentration examples. Uh, I wrote an article this time last year called Thoughtless Indexation, and it was all about how resilient was included in the top 40 index in December 2017, uh, and it was effectively an error. It should never have gone into the index. And they basically lied about how they were consolidating their BE trust, uh, and this thing got into the index, and uh, for those of you who follow the markets, uh, that's effectively what happened. They exited the index in March of 18. Okay? This cost an average passive investor about 30 basis points of performance. Why? Because we have concentration. Concentration is not just an issue because of NASPAS being a big weight in the index. Concentration in South Africa is, uh, our index is more concentrated even in the tail of the index. Those stocks that come in and out of our index have about a 65 basis point weighting. 
So resilient roughly went in at a 65 basis point weight. As I mentioned incorrectly, basically halved, you lost 30 basis points. Uh, that level of, of concentration would not have, it would, wouldn't have hurt you in the S&P uh, if a stock effectively got uh, incorrectly included in, in an index. Uh, no one has written about the incorrect inclusion of uh, resilient in the index, even though it costs passive investors quite a lot of money. Contrast that with how many articles would be written over the weekend about active managers not doing their job on Tongot. Okay? Where were the passive managers who are taking their 30 bips to track this index? The least they could do is check whether, in fact, the JSE has their calculations right. And that, I, I promise you, is a 30-minute task job. All right, Steinhoff collapse. Uh, no presentation is complete either with a picture of Steinhoff or Marcus Euster. Uh, again, you know, uh, this collapse, I guess, uh, uncovered incon inconvenient truths both for the active and for the passive managers. There were some passive managers who came out quite quickly and said, well, we actually own less weight than all those managers that were overweight the stock. But that's actually intellectually dishonest because William Sharp tells us that they must have also been more overweight all the other managers, including Prudential, who were underweight uh, Steinhoff as well. But this, uh, the collapse got me thinking about effectively the unintended consequences of, or the cost of a corporate failure in a concentrated index. So the cost of a corporate failure is going to be far more significant in a concentrated index like South Africa than uh, in the US. So let's just for the time being assume we don't know which stock is going to go uh, bankrupt. I know that a lot of the passive investors have told us post the fact that it was very easy to spot the sign of collapse, but let's just assume we don't know. So we assume that it is the median stock uh, that will go bankrupt, and let's assume we have one corporate failure uh, every 10 years. At the moment in South Africa, we seem to have one every year, but for the, for the, for the purpose of this example, we're going to spread this loss uh, over 10 years. So the median stock in South Africa has a 120 basis point weight. Uh, if you effectively lose that because of a corporate failure, the loss spread over 10 years is 12 basis points. Uh, the loss in the S&P is only one basis point. But let's compare that to the cost of passive. So, I mean, these numbers might be slightly off, but uh, in the US you can definitely get a passive for 10 basis points, and in South Africa you can definitely get a passive for 40 basis points. Look at the incremental increase or the, um, to your true cost of passive as a result of corporate failure. In the US, uh, effectively... Um, your cost goes up 10% from 10 to 11 basis points. Uh, in South Africa, the true cost of passive effectively rises by 30% uh, from 40 basis points up to 52 basis points. Okay, last slide from me. Okay, does passive actually outperform? So what I've got here uh, is five-year returns to the end of April. These are all the funds in the general equity category, uh, passive including uh, active. Um, and then I've also shown you here, just for interest sake, the market in, in sort of dotted red and the general equity average. Now, if an active manager like Prudential behaves dysfunctionally, that, that will be reflected in underperformance of the market or the benchmark, uh, and a consultant, I see some in the room, will effectively fire us. So what I've done here is I've removed all those active funds that effectively haven't beaten the market. Okay, the question is, who is going to hold passive to account? So what we show here is the number of passive, including smart beta funds. So you do have some passive funds that are doing exactly what they are meant to do. They are effectively holding the market and effectively generating the market return. 
My argument here comes for all those other smart beta type products that have jumped onto the passive bandwagon. And when these products are launched, be it a Divi Plus or a Momentum or SOI Index, when they launch, they tell you, well, on the back test, how they would have done relative to the market. But as soon as they launch, they only show you the, their performance relative to the benchmark that they're tracking. Okay, so the Divi Plus ETF tracks the Divi Plus Index, etc. What this does, to, what we've tried to do here is to actually say, well, are these smart beta or passive products actually outperforming the market? Uh, and effectively, um, there's only one product that is actually outperforming the market. All the other passive products are effectively have underperformed the market uh, over the last uh, five years. Yeah, so that's me in a nutshell. Um, I'm not sure if we're doing questions or... We have time for quick, short, yeah. short questions, yeah. yeah. Cool. Any questions? Got one at the back. Hi, thanks. Um, just a quick one. What is that one passive that's outperforming? Um, we're not supposed to push product. Um, I've told that was already done this morning. That is the Satrix, that, that is the Satrix Momentum Fund. Okay. Uh, we originally did this analysis two years ago when we originally did our active versus passive uh, debate. At that stage, there were only seven funds and none of them had beaten the market. So. I presume the Satrix momentum was launched sort of, yeah, in that sort of window, uh, and that's the one that is sort of currently outperforming. Um, yeah, this one here is the same, yeah, is the same company, but the Divi Plus factor uh, returns. Question at the Correct, yeah, no, that is very well picked up, correct. Um, although, yeah, that is a good point. A lot of these funds also are not, yeah, they should actually, yeah, the, very good point, yeah. Okay, a round of applause though. Just one more question there. Pardon, got one more question. Sorry, wh why did you compare the top 40 to the S&P 500? Because by its very design, the top 40 is going to be a lot more concentrated. Um, what's yeah, the thing? So, I guess the question is, what are your derivative contracts written on? So, in South Africa, it's the top 40. And what are the original passive, what were the original passive products launched to sort of cover? So, if you look at the US, the original passive products, the Vanguard product, was an S&P 500 sort of tracker. And in South Africa, the sort of general convention is a sort of a top 40. You, the, I think there is one tracker here which actually looks to sort of replicate the entire index, but we've often found because of cost it makes sense to try and replicate the sort of uh, most common index, particularly the one that has the, der the derivatives against it. So that's why I've compared the top 40, SA top 40, to the S&P 500. I don't know if that sort of answers your, your question. By its very nature, the S&P 500 is going to be more diverse. There's no, but it is a deeper market. Yeah. Um, and I guess our original sort of contention was that a lot of the research written on passive emanates out of the U.S., where you have a diversified index. A lot of people then take that research and they'll say, okay, we're going to just apply it to South Africa. But hold on a sec, you've gone from a universe of like 5,000 stocks to a universe of 100. And maybe you know, in that sort of progression, something that worked over here is not necessarily going to work in another space. And that sometimes I think is lost. 
So that's why I encourage you to do some, some work. We have another question at the back. We're done with questions. Are you happy? All right. Well, thank thank you, you very, very much. A round of applause for Johnny.